0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, 2 Samuel chapter 13. In the previous chapter of 2 Samuel, we saw something that ought to give us great pause, if not perhaps a little discomfort. It is that although David was forgiven as an act of grace by Jehovah, God of Israel, and although the Lord again showed David favor, neither he nor his family nor his government ever fully recovered from the immorality of the David and Bathsheba affair. And as we follow the progress of David, we're going to see a steadily weakening man brought low by the burden of a continuous succession of heartbreaks and calamities that were laid upon him at the very hand of the one who had forgiven him. David well understood that the source of his troubles was his own sin and the judgment of the God who had no choice in his perfect holiness but to let David Feel the sting of rebuke and of divine justice. Now, why ought we to pay such close attention to this bit of tragic history? Certainly not so that we can show our proper Christian sympathy and understanding towards David's troubles. Rather, it's because we need to wake up and understand that the way the Lord treated David is the pattern after which we're all going to be treated. How many people who have sincerely prayed the sinner's prayer, faithfully gone to church on countless Sundays, synagogues on countless Saturdays, happily placed 10% of their income into a silver offering plate, have dejectedly walked away from God? after experiencing His harsh hand upon them in response to their sinning. And this is because a horribly misguided doctrine has been taught to them by a church leadership whose goal it was to make God more attractive to them in hopes that more of the lost world would walk through their doors. Often as a result of that doctrine, those who feel God's severity now also feel betrayed. Betrayed that the promise of immunity from earthly repercussions of the rebellion turned out to be a false expectation. The Holy Scriptures, Old Old and New Testaments, testify in harmony that sin will be and it must be responded to by the Lord, or He's just not a just God. And because Jehovah is a just God, sin is and will be responded to on two levels spiritually and earthly. And thus, because all sin is first and worst a trespass against the Lord, a spiritual payment is due. And that spiritual payment has been made for those who trust the one who made it, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. But an earthly penalty is also due, depending on the nature of that sin. Sometimes the payment is through the justice system of human governments, which God created and ordained as an authorized means to carry out justice. Other times it's a payment directly caused by God and we're going to see especially that happen in David's life since as king he was generally beyond the reach of human government. If it makes you feel better to define God's action against you for your sinning as discipline be my guest. But if that's going to be your decision then please assign that same term to the horrors that we're going to see visited upon David's family as well. Because what is befalling David is of the same nature and intent as what befalls us when we choose to defy our God and His commandments and trespass upon His holy nature. 2nd Samuel chapter 13 follows the chapter wherein David rather wherein Jehovah pronounced his judgment upon David that the sword would never leave his household. This means that divinely caused treachery, violence, and death would play out for generations to come among David's closest descendants. What we are about to read today now And to dissect is sometimes called Amnon's incest. The perverted behavior and immorality depicted in this chapter has been somewhat watered down, especially in the English translations of the original Hebrew manuscripts. And as we get into it, it's going to become obvious why that is. Therefore, let me give you a caution. And please hear me. Just as modern day theatrical films require a rating and a warning that the contents may not be suitable for all audiences, I want you to be aware that the contents of this chapter may be offensive or disturbing to some of you. And it may be a little bit too intense for younger children. I cannot possibly know who among you have special sensitivities to sexual violence and violation nor can i know whether your children are properly prepared or mature enough to hear what happens this is entirely up to you i just want you to know what's coming so you can make a decision okay. on the other hand this is god's word and i can't just bypass the difficult parts i can't blunt the impact that these passages were intended to have upon us, the Lord's disciples. So with that warning, open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Second Samuel chapter 13, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 346. Now, Shalom, the son of David had a beautiful sister named Tamar and sometime after the previous events Amnon, the son of David, fell in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he became ill for she was a virgin and Amnon thought it would be impossible to approach her. But Amnon had a friend named Yonadov, the son of Shema, David's brother and Yonadav was a very shrewd fellow. And he asked him, Why, son of the king, are you growing thinner every day? Won't you tell me? And Amnon answered him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother of Shalom's sister. And Yonadav said to him, Well, lie down on your bed and pretend you're sick. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Oh, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food to eat and have her prepare the food where I can watch and I'll eat what she serves me. So Amnon lay down and pretended he was sick and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes here where I can watch and and I'll eat what she serves me. David sent this instruction home to Tamar go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare him some food so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down and she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes while he watched and baked the cakes then she took the pan, turned them out in front of him but he refused to eat Amnon said, have everyone leave me everyone left him Amnon said to Tamar, "...bring the food into the room so that I can have you serve me." And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the room to Amnon, her her brother. But when she brought them near so that he could eat, he grabbed her and said to her, "...come to bed with me, my sister." "...no, my brother," she answered him, "...don't force me. Things like this aren't done in Israel. Don't behave so disgracefully. Where could I go with such shame?" And as for you, you'll be regarded regarded as one of Israel's vulgar brutes. Now therefore, please, speak to the king, because he won't keep me from you. However, he wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he overpowered her and raped her. But then he was filled with utter revulsion for her. His hatred of her was even greater than the love he had had for her before. And Amnon said to her, get up, get out of here. No, she objected, because throwing me out like this is an even worse thing than what you've already done to me. But he wouldn't listen to her. He called to his personal servant and said, Get rid of this woman for me. Throw her out. Lock the door after her. She was wearing a long-sleeved robe. This was how they used to dress the king's daughters who were virgins. His servant took her out and locked the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head, tore her long-sleeved robe that she was wearing, laid her hand on her head, and went off, crying aloud as she went. Avshalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? But now, my sister, keep quiet, because he is your brother. Don't take the matter to heart. But Tamar remained desolate in her brother Avshalom's house. And when King David heard about all these things, he became very angry. As for Avshalom, he refused to say a word to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Avshalom hated Amnon for having raped his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Avshalom had sheep shears in Baal Hatzor, near Ephraim, Avshalom invited all of the king's sons. And Avshalom went to the king and said, Your servant has sheep shears, please! Let the king and his servants come along with your servant. And the king replied to Absalom, No, my son, let's not all go. We we don't want to be a burden to you. And Absalom pressed him, but he wouldn't go. However, he gave him his blessing. And then Absalom said, Well, if you won't go, then please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom kept pressing him. So he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom ordered his servants, now pay close attention. When Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine and I say to you, kill Amnon, then strike him down. Don't be afraid. I'm the one ordering you to do it. But take courage and be bold. Absalom's servants did to Amnon as Absalom had ordered. At this, all the king's sons jumped up, mounted their mules, and fled. And while they were on their way, the news came to David that Absalom had killed all the king's sons, and not one of them was left alive. The king got up and tore his clothes and lay on the ground while all of his servants stood by with their clothes torn too. But then Yonadav, the son of Shema, David's brother, spoke up and he said, My lord shouldn't think they've, all, they've killed... All the young men, the king's sons, only Amnon is dead. For Absalom has meant to do this ever since the day he raped his sister Tamar. So my lord, the king shouldn't take it as seriously as if all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. However, Absalom took flight. The young man, kept keeping watch, looked up. He saw many people coming along the road behind him on the hillside. Yonadav said to the king, Here, the king's sons have come. It's just as your servant said. The moment he finished speaking, the king's sons came, they cried out and they wept. The king, too, all his servants cried out in great pain. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Gesher. David mourned for his son every day. So Avshalom fled, went to Geshur, and stayed there three years. But as King David became reconciled to the death of his son Amnon, he increasingly filled with longing to see Absalom. The setting is somewhere around the 20th year. Of David's reign. A little later than that, perhaps, but certainly not any earlier. Um, Amnon's sin is but the beginning of a long series of domestic troubles, even coup attempts, in David's household. David had become self indulgent, therefore, he'd become indulgent of his children. He had given them a bad example in many areas of life most of them you see weren't around in his glory days of such admirable faith and trust in the Lord that led to his assumption, or ascension rather to the throne thus it, it was the less desirable characteristics of their father that they mostly witnessed and of course they picked up on it as but the rights of the privileged royalty of which they were part now I've stated on numerous occasions that while so many Bible stories seem to come, out of, come to us out of left field, so to speak, in fact, there was usually a, a logical context to why the characters chose to act as they did. And their behavior and motivations weren't a lot different than what drives us, moderns, in our time. Bible scholars, as well as the ancient sages, reasonably conjecture that the background for what we see happening with Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom revolved around competition for succession to David's throne. Now this was no small matter. It was a deadly serious game because the rewards for success were enormous. Because David had so many children by so many wives, the number of competitors wrestling for position was great. Well, Amnon was David's firstborn. He was the son of David's wife Ahinoam, who we read about in chapter 3. And it seems that Abishalom was generally considered as second in line behind Amnon to be king. Avishalom's position as second in line came about not as a result of his being the second born. He probably was not. But because not only was he the legitimate son of King David, he was also the grandson of another king from his mother's side, the king of Gesher. Both sides of his family were royalty. Sadly, their mutual sister, Tamar, played the role of a political pawn in both Amnon's and Absalom's ruthless designs to position themselves as the next king of Israel. Verse 1 informs us that Absalom, Avishalom in Hebrew, had a very beautiful sister named Tamar. Their mother was Makkah daughter of the king of Gesher. And although the scriptures infer that the two were indeed brother and sister in the same way we'd all think of it, some of the ancient sages and rabbis said that they had different mothers. Now I want to get this out of the way up front by explaining their reasoning for their conclusions because the relationship between Absalom and Tamar is central to this story. Now I've spoken before of the exaggerated and carnal and even completely contrary teachings of the rabbis about David and his life story as compared to the generally plainly worded text of the Bible. And the reason for this is that David is seen by Judaism as virtually sinless. Very nearly the same way Christians see Christ and almost as the first appearance of the Messiah. Thus, no matter what Scripture may say, David is defended and meanings are violently twisted to make things turn out in his favor. Thus, while verse 1 implies nothing other than Absalom and Tamar being brother and sister in every biological sense, some rabbis go to great length to claim that they were not. Rather, they say that although they, along with unknown, did have a common father, David, three separate mothers were involved. Thus, each was a step sibling to the other. Another opinion by the Rabbi Mahari Kara admits that Absalom and Tamar had the same mother, Makah, but that Tamar wasn't really David's daughter. Rather, she had a different father. Now the goal of all this Judaistic gerrymandering of relationships among Amnon, Avishalom, and Tamar is to reduce the blame on David to effectively zero and to make it that Amnon and Tamar could have legally married so that the crime was far less significant than what it might otherwise seem. In other words, if Tamar had an entirely different set of parents than Omnon, then there was no incest whatsoever, and their marriage would have been solved, a marriage between them would have solved any legal issues. Now, in my view, none of those views are credible, but rather are simply fanciful imaginings of those whose number one goal is to protect the doctrines of Judaism in the synagogue. And before anybody thinks that I'm in some kind of rant against either, let me state that our beloved church has done the same sorts of things for at least 1,800 years. There is plenty of guilt and responsibility to go around. Thus it will be my position throughout that Absalom and Tamar are full brother and sister. Amnon known as their half-brother all having David as their common biological father. With that relationship established, let's move on. Now even though the end of verse 1 states, and I need you to follow along with me, we're going to be a couple of weeks just in this chapter. Even though the end of verse 1 states that Amnon fell in love, it says... With Tamar, verse 2 immediately defines the type of love this amounted to. It was sexual obsession. Amnon was struck with an erotic lust for Tamar. The last thing on his mind was to make Tamar his wife and to start a family. We're informed that Tamar was a virgin... Now while in modern western society that term only explains that such a person has never had intercourse in Hebrew society it means that plus a number of other things. First it means that the person is a female. Males were never called virgins. Second it means that the girl was young. And third it means that the girl was still living in her father's household under his authority and she had never been married now while that means that she was available for marriage the end of verse 2 says clearly that Amnon knew he couldn't have any kind of a relationship with her beyond a sister and brother relationship some rabbis say that those words mean that Amnon couldn't have anything to do with her only because she was a virgin But unless that means he was barred from having sex with her because of her virgin status, then that argument just isn't fruitful. There was no restriction of a man having a relationship with a virgin. It merely couldn't include a sexual relationship. Courting, within the super modest Hebrew concept of courting, was usual and normal, It was completely allowed by the laws of Moses. It didn't matter at all, whether the girl was a virgin or not as regards a sexual relationship because sex outside of marriage even if the woman was a widow or a divorcee that's forbidden. It's obvious that Amnon's disappointment was that because Tamar was his half-sister the law did not permit incest nor did it Permit their marriage; thus, he couldn't have sex with her, which was his goal. Now, it's interesting to me that Amnon succumbed to the same character flaw and crime as his father, David. We see here in a similar that there is a similar theme in that David developed an uncontrollable lust for Bathsheba based on her rare beauty. And David's son, Amnon, succumbs to the same. Only this time, if it were even possible, Amnon's improper desires are worse than his father's. Now why this is interesting is because we see the Lord supernaturally handing down proportional justice upon David, just as he said he would. It is the classic eye-for-an-eye eye principle whereby because David lusted after a woman who was legally taboo for him, so now his firstborn son lusts after a woman who is legally taboo for him. And the result in both cases would be domestic violence and death. Now remembering now that a lot of jockeying for position to succeed King David was behind the actions of David's family, we are introduced now to Yonadav, a cousin of Amnon's. And Yonadav saw an opportunity to advance himself he noticed that Amnon was looking depressed. So he asked him what the problem was, and Amnon freely told him. The wily Yonadav devised a plan to lure Tamar into Amnon's chambers. And the plan was that Amnon was to get into his bed and pretend to be sick. And David would do his fatherly duty by coming to visit Amnon, and then Amnon, looking pitiful and half-dead, would tell his father that, well, perhaps if his half-sister Tamar came by to fixing some food, he might find the strength to eat it, maybe feel a little bit better. Well, since a woman's job was to fix food, attend to men, and be a comforter, David agreed. And while Amnon was indeed pretending to be physically ill, there is no doubt that he was sincerely lovesick Mm -hmm. or or better overcome with lust and genuinely in distress no matter how self-centered the cause of it Mm -hmm. he would lie awake all night thinking about her and thus look haggard in the morning. The Jewish scholar Shimon Bar Efrat says that when spoken out loud Amnon's deepest emotions are revealed in the words he used to beg his father for his sister to come to him because the words are arranged and chosen in such a way to sound like a series of deep, heavy, forlorn sighs. In English it says in 2 Samuel thirteen five please let my sister Tamar come and give me food to eat, have her prepare the food where I can watch, I'll eat what she serves me. In Hebrew it sounds like et Tamar Ahot Ahni Ohev is deep, deep very dramatic, very melancholy. And certainly the words were arranged and spoken in a dramatic way so as to bring David nearly to tears in sympathy for his distressed son. What father could deny his son something as simple as having his own sister come and prepare some food for him to eat, perhaps lift his spirits? Well, David sent word to Tamar that she was to go to her ill brother, prepare him some food, and in verse 8 she complied. Tamar lived in a separate area of the city of David from her half-brother Amnon, and since David had a sizable harem, he would have had several virgin daughters of marriageable age. It's believed from some later verses and some other scriptural evidence that the virgin girls lived in a um, more or less separate place, kind of together in a convent, a a highly protected environment. They lived separate from the men so that nothing immodest or worse could happen. In fact, as we're going to shortly see, the virgins even wore a special uniform that would both publicly testified th- to their virgin status and it was especially a, an especially lovely and modest in its design. Now we're told that indeed she prepared these cakes and baked them in unknown sight according to his request. Now these cakes were a dumpling-like food but in this context you see there's this subtle double meaning buried in the the Hebrew words chosen, which a Hebrew from that era would have immediately understood. It is that the first use of the phrase made cakes is in Hebrew levav. And the second use, just a few words later, is va. The root word these are taken from is lev, which means heart. Thus the name for this particular kind of cake is heart cakes or heart dumplings. It's not that they were heart shaped like valentines. Rather it is that the heart cakes were a very quickly prepared food that would in old English style strengthen the heart. In other words... They tasted good. They provided a, a quick boost of energy. Maybe today we'd call them comfort food. A food that kind of brightens our mental outlook, along with filling up our bellies. But of course, now we see the double meaning. That the girl who was the cause of Omnon's heartache was fixing him heart cakes. Now before we move forward, also notice this. It was King David who facilitated his virgin daughter Tamar going to uh, Amnon, and this would lead directly to her being raped. Of course, this isn't what David intended, but it is an irony that no doubt was all part of the Lord's punishment upon David such that even attempting to show concern for his son ended up devastating his family. And once again, we see divine lex talionis, eye for an eye, playing out. See, David had cruelly used an unwitting messenger to go and fetch an unsuspecting Bathsheba to his palace so that he might have immoral and probably not completely unopposed sex with her. So now David himself is made that unwitting messenger that is used by Amnon to fetch the unsuspecting Tamar to the man who would force himself on her, have immoral sex with her, and end her virginity. When Tamar had finished cooking those heart cakes and tried to serve them to her half-brother, he still refused to eat. In that kind of whimsical, authoritative way that only princes and princesses have at their disposal, he waves his hand. He orders all the servants, hers and his, leave his chambers immediately. He tells Tamar, bring the cakes into his bedchamber. Imagine that by now Tamar was starting to get a feeling that everything wasn't just right. She begins to serve him when the supposedly ill and frail Amnon makes his move. He reaches out and grabs her and tells her of his desire to have intercourse with her. Tamar attempted to escape by pointing to the inherent wickedness of Amnon's desire. No, my brother, she says, no, don't force me. Things like this aren't done in Israel. Don't behave so disgracefully. By Tamar unequivocally uttering no to Amnon's advances, all the sin of what was occurring fell upon Amnon. Amnon was about to become a rapist. But inevitably, it was the woman, Tamar, the victim, who would suffer the most. In verse 13, Tamar tries to bring Amnon to his senses by rightly telling him that they would both suffer the worst shame from this. She, because of the loss of her virginity, he, because of the crime of rape and incest. Some have completely misinterpreted the final words of verse 13. Speak to the king because he won't keep me from you. as meaning that David would find a way to allow Amnon and Tamar to be married so that they could avoid committing an immoral act. That's not at all the intent. As I mentioned earlier, the virgin girls were generally kept separated from the male population. But she was claiming that if Amnon insisted that he had this deep affection for her as a sister, their father David wouldn't intentionally keep them from visiting one another, but by no means was either sex or marriage a part of her meaning. Even the sages say that without doubt, Tamar was trying every tactic she could think of to talk her way out of this dangerous situation. It was to no avail. Amnon had thought about this moment for a very long time. He played this out in his mind over and over. He was not going to be denied. I have no doubt that in some twisted way he actually thought of this as romantic. I also have no doubt that he thought she would comply, even hoped that she was as anxious for lovemaking as was he. But in reality, none of that mattered. He was bigger, he was stronger, so he forced himself upon her. Now I want to say something before I go any farther that needs to be, smoke, needs to be spoken even among believers. And ladies, young women and girls especially, I want to tell you something about men that you may not understand something that's not flattering about us but it has been so for all ages and it's never going to change till heaven and earth changes when something of this nature is approaching as we're witnessing between Amnon and Tamar the only hope is for the woman to attempt to gain control because it's unlikely the man is going to come to a census the best solution of course for a woman is to do all she can to keep herself out of such circumstances in the first place. But in this case, Tamar had no choices. You know, men love to talk about a woman's raging hormones. But men's hormones rage at least as strongly, and ours are the more problematic. You know, yours, ladies, can be very frustrating and emotional, for you and for us. But ours can be downright criminal. Downright criminal. And the younger we are, the worse it is. Once Amnon had all these circumstances running in his favor it was like a lion herding an exhausted and frantic gazelle into a box canyon. The lion hadn't gone through all this trouble just to let the gazelle go. And by no means am I trying to make light of what was happening, but ladies, I'm telling you, at the moments of intense sexual encounter, it's you who are the only ones who have any semblance of a working brain function. (laughs) For men, the almost certain consequences of our rash behavior, especially when it comes to sex, finishes a very distant second to what our hormones are demanding. And I'm not rationalizing bad behavior, deflecting our male responsibility. I'm trying to tell you that of the many ways that the Lord has made us delightfully different, one of them is that our sex drives operate very differently. Tamar was concerned about the consequences. Amnon was concerned about immediate gratification. The scriptures state that he wouldn't listen to her. He would not hear her pleas to be obedient to the laws of Moses as the chosen people had an obligation to be. And the truth is that women will always bear the unequal brunt of the aftermath. See, Tamar's life would be ruined and she knew it. Um Amnon would merely move on. The minute Amnon was finished with her, this kind of revulsion for her welled up inside of him. Tamar had resisted in every way. Her refusal and disgust have essentially ruined the experience that he had fantasized over for so long. His animal lust for her had instantly turned into a hatred that was even greater than his so-called love. Only now that his hormones are satisfied does Amnon begin to contemplate the earthly consequences of his fiendish foolishness. What this means for tomorrow, this is nowhere in his thoughts. He blames her. Things go from bad to worse. Amnon orders his victim to get up off of his bed and leave. He didn't want the object of his unrequited passion to be in his sight any longer she's horrified being sent away as though she was a street prostitute would be an even greater shame what she had in mind by not wanting to leave just yet is hard to say possibly it was little more than than some time to digest this calamity to, to, to think about what to do next maybe to get her emotions and her physical appearance in order some rabbis say it was to wait until nighttime, and she might be able to, to sneak away less noticed. Other rabbis say that despite the law against it, she wanted him to marry her. And when we see what was going on in David's day, with little mention of a functioning priesthood and, and the falling back to the common Middle Eastern customs and traditions and in place of following the laws of Moses, it could well be that the regulations about marriage and incest weren't being very vigorously enforced. We are given an earlier example of this in the David and Bathsheba matter. But Amnon would have none of this. He ordered his servants to throw Tamar out and lock the door behind her. And interestingly... Sadly, verse 17 doesn't really have Amnon saying, throw this woman out. Rather, he completely dehumanizes her. The Hebrew for woman is Isha, but Amnon refers to her as, etzot, this one. Throw this one out, he says to his servants. He treats her like she was a stalker or a a hanger-on who needed to be kept away from him. Now whether or not the laws concerning sex and marriage were being followed in David's day is up for debate. But let's see what Deuteronomy says about this. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 13. Deuteronomy 22. And we're going to start reading at verse 13. page 221 if you have a complete Jewish Bible if a man marries a woman has sexual relations with her and then having come to dislike her brings false charges against her and defames her character by saying, I married this woman, but when I had intercourse with her, I did not find evidence that she was a virgin. Then the girl's father and mother are to take the evidence of the girl's virginity to the leaders of the town at the gate. The girl's father will say to the leaders, I let my daughter marry this man, but he hates her. So he has brought false charges that he didn't find evidence of her virginity, yet here's the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they will lay the cloth before the town leaders. The leaders of that town are to take the man and punish him and fine him two and a half pounds of silver, silver shekels, which they will give to the girl's father because he was publicly defamed, uh, because he has publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. She will remain his wife. And he is forbidden from divorcing her as long as he lives. But if the uh, the charge is substantiated that evidence for the girl's virginity could not be found, then they are to lead the girl to the door of her father's house, and the men of the town will stone her to death. Because she has committed in Israel the disgraceful act of being a prostitute while still in her father's house. In this way you will put an end to such wickedness among you. If a man is found sleeping with a woman who has a husband, both of them must die. The man who went to bed with the woman and the woman too. In this way you will expel such wickedness from Israel. If a girl who is a virgin is engaged to a man and another man comes upon her in the town and has sexual relations with her, you are to bring them both out to the gate of the city and stone them to death. The girl because she didn't cry out for help there in the city and the man because he's humiliated his neighbor's wife. In this way you'll put an end to such wickedness among you. But if the man comes upon the engaged girl out in the countryside and the man grabs her and has sexual relations with her then only the man who had intercourse with her is to die. You'll do nothing to the girl because she's done nothing deserving of death. The situation is like the case of the man who attacks his neighbor and kills him for he found her in the countryside and the engaged girl cried out but there was no one to save her. If a man comes upon a girl who is a virgin but who is not engaged and he grabs her and has sexual relations with her and they're caught in the act, then the man who had intercourse with her must give to the girl's father one and one quarter pounds of silver shekels. She will become his wife because he humiliated her. He may not divorce her as long as he lives. Notice that in reality, the penalty for a man in this situation is usually primarily financial. But for the woman, the loss of her virginity is a lifelong calamity. In fact, under certain circumstances, it could lead to her execution. No man wanted to marry a girl who wasn't a virgin unless she was a widow or perhaps a divorcee. Literally, a typical Hebrew girl's financial worth to her family became near zero if she were unmarried but not a virgin. Tamar is in a classic catch-22. By no fault of her own, she is no longer pure. The incest laws of Leviticus 18.6-12 says that under no circumstances can she marry a half-brother. On the other hand, she can't marry anyone else. No decent Hebrew man would marry this non-virgin because that would bring shame upon him. As of now, she's an outcast, a pariah. It's unlikely she'll ever be able to fulfill her womanly duty to be fruitful and multiply. She will almost certainly not be able to marry. She will always be seen as one who was involved in incest. And wherever she goes, the hushed tones and disapproving looks are going to follow her. Let's finish up this week with verses 18 and 19. And here is where is described this long-sleeved virgin's robe that Tamar was wearing. And after she was thrown out the door, her clothes disheveled and torn, she couldn't hide her state. She threw ashes over herself, and the unmistakable sign among Hebrews of mourning and grief. Here is also where our understanding of patterns helps us out. The word used to describe her virgin's robe is a ketonet in Hebrew ketonet. It's a word rarely used in the Bible. But there is one other place where it is used that you will cri- quickly recognize. It's the same word used for Joseph's coat of many colors. Okay? There's no doubt that the choice of this word ketonet is intended by the author to draw a graphic parallel between the final state of Joseph's tunic and to Mars do you remember the significance of Joseph's tunic after his brothers sold him to Arab slave traders they needed a believable story to explain his disappearance to his father Jacob so they rubbed goat blood on the coat they handed it to Jacob and they told him Joseph had been killed by a wild animal so what we have here in 2nd Samuel is an equally graphic scene. The violated, rejected Tamar was dressed in a ketonet. She is destroyed. She throws ashes all over herself in despair. But there's something else on her tunic other than just dirt and ashes. Blood. She was a young virgin. She was wearing this tunic all during the rape. You'll recall that while this is a bit hard for us to to discuss in a mixed audience, in ancient times there was the tradition of the marriage cloth to whereby the newlyweds would consummate their marriage upon a new white cloth and the expectation of blood upon it was highly anticipated by the bride's parents as proof of their daughter's virginity. In fact, and we read about it in Deuteronomy, in fact the marriage cloth was then carefully stored away to be used as legal evidence in case the husband ever wished to divorce his wife and get his bride price back from the father using the excuse that she wasn't a virgin when he married her and so he had been defrauded. The blood on Tamar's virgin Ketoneth was public proof that she was no longer pure. There was no hiding it. What should have been a prized marriage cloth was now permanent evidence of her lifelong shame. Okay, We'll continue with chapter 13 next week.